Welcome to Open to Explore, the FBC Athens podcast featuring conversations exploring the intersection of faith and life. This episode features the third sermon in our Let's Talk 2020 series. The sermon, Whose World Is It Anyway?, is preached by Frank Granger, Minister of Christian Community at First Baptist Athens. In reference to climate change and global warming, the message suggests now is the time to take action in our care of God's creation. One day when I was about 10 years old, I popped the question. I was in the car with my parents, just an ordinary day headed out somewhere for the afternoon. Did we come from monkeys? Well, having been in the church and paying attention to the stories of scripture, I was well informed about the story of creation. As a fifth grade student in school and learning about science, I was learning about the creation of the earth, the universe, and the solar system. We had this really cool little interactive model that was on the counter and I always loved to go and play with it. It had, all, it had the sun in the middle and all the planets and little chains and you could turn a crank Everything would move in motion. It was so cool. Well, my little question prompted a theological conversation. Feminist theologian Frankie Granger, a.k.a. my mother, posed that the emphasis in the Genesis story of creation is not the how, but it is focused on the who. How creation came to be had possibilities because God, all-powerful, could create by any method that God so chose. Creator creates creation. Who creates is what matters first and foremost, and whose creation it is. These stories were not intended to be taken literally. The purpose of the texts, as commentator De La Torre writes, is not to elucidate the how, the mechanics of creation, but rather to seek answers about the why, the ultimate questions facing humanity. Not how, but who. Not process, but purpose. These are the concerns of the author. There are two temptations in interpreting these creation texts Walter Brueggemann writes about and warns us. One is the temptation to treat this as historical. People who regard science as a threat or guard particular, even personal claims about the text will work to treat this as historical. This ends in a collision with science. The other temptation, according to Brueggemann, is to treat these materials as myth. Then they become statements which announce what has always been and will always be true of the world. People who want to harmonize the text with science and make them rationally acceptable are likely to treat them as myth. It's neither, claims Brueggemann. The text is neither historical or myth. It is proclamation. It is the proclamation that covenant, being in covenant with the creator and in covenant with the creation as a whole, is the shape of reality. It is a theological claim about the character of God who 
who is bound to God's world and about the world which is bound to God. You and I are in relationship in this created world with God. It is about the who, not the how. Whose world is it? It is God's. And we are God's creation. And as God's creation, we are called to a faithful response and a glad obedience to God's will. Well, this addressed one dimension of my question at age 10 that day, but the question holds a great deal more. Did we come from monkeys? Also contained in the question was the dialogue, that wrestling, that troubling effort to bring together two realms of belief. The belief of the heart, faith, and the belief of the mind, knowledge and reason. The powers of the discovery of knowledge alongside the powers of discovery of faith. On the one hand, we're grounded and growing in a context of faith in God. We're oriented toward a belief in God's creative power, the mighty handiwork and splendor of the heavens, the awe-inspiring miracle and mystery of life. We echo the testimony of scripture, how majestic is God in all the earth. On the other hand, we have minds that grow in knowledge and reason as we are introduced to the fascinating and marvelous factual elements of nature. There are those among us who study and apply discoveries for the improvement of our lives. Discoveries are made regarding how things work and how our natural world functions. In some cases, the world of science world of scripture articulate different narratives. So did the science I was learning mean that scripture wasn't true? How could the world come together in six days when the development of human beings in the form that we know today took years and years and years too many to count or account for in scripture? And how did dinosaurs fit on the ark? Does acceptance of one negate the other? And who decided at some point in time that these two were mutually exclusive? The challenge of science discoveries and scripture interpretation poses interesting questions for us. At times, challenges emerge because of things not addressed in scripture at all. Sometimes, the challenge is for us to rethink our interpretation of Scripture. Other challenges have to do with a willingness to reorient our worldview or to relearn something that was erroneously taught or taught just on assumptions that have changed. And then there are those challenges which are perceived as threats to those who hold the power. During the 1500s and 1600s, the fear of heretics spreading teachings and opinions that contradicted the Bible dominated the Catholic Church. The Church persecuted scientists that formed and taught theories that the Church decided were heretical. The Church placed books that promoted those heretical teachings on an index of prohibited books. During this time, there was a war between science and religion. Nicholas 
Copernicus, published a book in 1543 in which he wrote that the sun was at the center of the earth, that the center and the earth rotated around it. It was described as a heliocentric model. This differed from the geocentric model. The accepted belief at the time, which was also supported by scriptural interpretations of the time, that the earth was at the center and the sun and everything else revolved around us. Like most theories in their beginning, it wasn't complete, but it was a significant beginning. Kepler, a mathematician and astronomer some 50 years later, was the first to officially endorse Copernicus's theory. And Copernicus's book was not initially banned, which provided Galileo access. In 1629, Galileo published his book, following other essays and writing that advocated for Copernicus's view. Three years later, Galileo was charged with vehement suspicion of heresy and ordered to come to Rome for a trial. You could feel the shaking in the boots, can't you? When on trial, he was threatened, and he was forced to recant the heliocentric theory of Copernicus, and Galileo was sentenced to prison. Isaac Newton, the one we know for discovery of the law of universal gravitation, for one thing, he was born in the same year that Galileo died. Newton confirmed through his work the model of the sun at the center and that the earth and planets revolved around it. This history and all of the stories that go with it are intricate and very interesting. I've provided only a tiny glimpse just to emphasize a few points. This is one example of the conflict between science and faith particularly between scientists and leaders within the church. There's also value in taking note of the length of time from Copernicus to Newton, from the introduction of a new concept to its acceptance. It covers nearly 200 years. And then beyond that, it took until 1820 for the church to allow yet another astronomer to declare that the motion of the earth around the sun as proposed by Copernicus in the 1500s was factual. And it was not until 1992, which is in some of our lifetime, 350 years after the death of Galileo, that the church formally admitted error when Pope John Paul II said Galileo suffered unjustly and actually praised his righteousness regarding the relationship between science and religion. One other point is really more of a question. Had you and I been living during the time of Copernicus, what would it have been like to embrace a new concept, especially one that was described by its opponents as contrary to scripture? What might the public square conversations have been like Imagine what they're like now on social media platforms. Another interesting scientific discovery occurred in the 1820s. Joseph Fourier, a French mathematician and physicist, 
first suggested that gases in the atmosphere trap some of the sun's heat like gases in a greenhouse. In the 1860s, John Tyndall, an Irish physicist, came up with the potent metaphor of greenhouse gases as a blanket covering the earth. These are basic elements of understanding what we know as the greenhouse effect. These 19th century discoveries didn't suggest any human responsibility. However, evidence and suggestion that human responsibility for the increase in these greenhouse gases is not recent. In the 1920s, that's 100 years ago, the Swedish chemist Savante Arrhenius, using estimates of coal burning, built on other calculations he had made, and estimated the doubling of CO2 content of the planet's atmosphere would raise its temperature by as much as 4.5 or 7 degrees Fahrenheit. Then in 1957, Roger Revelle at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and Hans Seuss of the U.S. Geological Survey showed through their work that oceans were limited in the capacity to absorb the CO2 we released through burning fossil fuels. Well, just as the science behind climate change and global warming is not recent, neither is the awareness of this in the political arenas. At the end of the 50s, that would be the 1950s, the consequences of CO2 release were clear enough for policymakers to take note. And in 1965, President Johnson told the nation this. This generation has altered the composition of the atmosphere on a global scale through a steady increase in carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels. Continuing through the 1970s, the consensus on global warming and climate change in the scientific community has tracked a fairly steady path of increasing understanding and certainty. Conclusion by Adam Frank in his NPR report six years ago is really worthy of mentioning. He concludes that these things mean climate science and climate change are older than the atom bomb, older than the discovery of penicillin, and the older than the recognition of DNA. It's older than transatlantic jet flights digital computers, and moon rockets. Climate science and its conclusions are now venerable, established science. To claim anything else, he says, is to rewrite history. Apparently, science does know some things. What was true about the highlights from the summary of the work to prove that the Earth revolved around the sun is true here as well. With climate science and climate change and global warming, the stories, discoveries, developments, and the disturbing setbacks are intricate and important. More in-depth exploration and explanation is warranted than this context here really allows. But a few points can be made and should be made. We must be honest and ask, in what way is fear a shaping emotion in the challenge to face the realities of climate change and global warming? 
And when we find fear, we should probe to uncover what we or others are afraid of. But remember this, we do not have to be afraid of the truth. We must continue to do good and, and to be good and faithful students of Scripture and of the work of interpreting Scripture. This includes not standing by and allowing only those with literalist responses be the voice of theology and faith. The stories of creation are not to be taken literally. They are proclamation. And included in this proclamation is the call to us as the created to the vocation of shepherd. The call is to the activity of caretaking, which is in direct contrast to the ideology of grasping exploration or irresponsible self-indulgence. Literally, hundreds of years are beginning to add up, indicating a slow and often reluctant path to work toward change. We don't have the luxury of another hundred years to wait. We must not let those who are reluctant to change because of fear, greed, or power suppress our responsibility to act. In the words of the National Climate Assessment Report six years ago in 2014, what is new over the last decade is that we know with increasing certainty that climate change is happening now. While scientists continue to refine projections of the future, observations unequivocally show that climate is changing and the warming of the past 50 years is primarily due to human-induced emissions of heat-trapping gases. These emissions come mainly from burning coal, oil, and gas, with additional contributions from forest clearing and some of our agricultural practices. Global climate is projected to continue to change over this century and beyond, but there is still time to act to limit the amount of change and the extent of damaging impacts. You have heard it read, we have been called and empowered with dominion. However, this is not a form of exploitation. As ruler of the earth, we are called to be guardians of the earth. The creation story does not make us conquerors, it makes us stewards. Creation as gift means that all living creatures have a basic right to its resources. To hoard the planet's resources upsets the delicate balance between life and the resources needed to sustain life can see how this issue is even in the realm of justice. Being given dominion implies our role as caretaking stewards of creation and of all of life. In Genesis 2.15, it's a verse in the second story of creation. There are two in the Bible. God puts humankind in the garden to till it and to keep it. The word to till has both agricultural and non-agricultural meanings and usages. In the non-agricultural meaning, it means to serve. 
It's the same word we find in another verse very familiar to us. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. To keep the land or to take care of the land is a word in Hebrew that has meaning of guard, protect, and watch over. This word found here in Genesis, in the Genesis proclamation, is the same word that's found in that very well-known benediction in Numbers, which begins, the Lord bless you and keep you. Protect, guard, and watch over. What God does for us, we too are to do for God's creation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Copernicus, Galileo, and Newton saw a new heaven and a new earth. They brought into focus a new way of seeing and understanding the earth and our relationship to the heavens above. It was challenging to learn that we were no longer the center of the universe. Might we have a new a vision of a new heaven and a new earth? Might we be able to embrace our calling as shepherd, guard, to care for and to be good stewards of the creation with which we have been entrusted? A new heaven and a new earth where the pains of increasing fires and the rising tide of waters are diminished. A new heaven and a new earth where it is not dirtied with litter from our carelessness a new heaven and a new earth where we accept our responsibility to care for, protect, and guard. A new heaven and a new earth where life, all life is valued because it belongs to God. Thank you for listening to Open to Explore, the FBC Athens podcast featuring conversations at the intersection of faith and life. Coming in December is a daily podcast featuring devotions for Advent.